All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, and uh, let's dust it off again and uh, pull it out. Sometimes uh, these minor prophets are seldom uh, looked at in our reading and uh, sometimes even in our study, and it's good for us to, uh, uh, to uh, find them, uh, find, find a book like that. And a 997 page number on my Bible if you need some help here tonight. I don't know if that helps you out, but you got a Thompson chain. Zechariah, I think one of the hardest things that I ever had to do of all the things that I've done, um, both working, working landscaping and maintenance in 100 degree, over 100, you know, humidity in Alabama and um, and uh, long days, and working in the dish room, and being a dorm supervisor, being a principal, and a pastor, and youth youth uh, director, and all of that. I think the hardest thing I ever had to do was uh, coach junior high girls basketball. Uh, <laughs> that was that was one of two, especially to a bunch of girls that had never played before. All right, so that was kind of one of those things that, and I had never coached before, so that was even is even no experience. And I didn't play in high school. I homeschooled, okay, so um, I knew how to shoot the ball, but I didn't know. I knew some of the rules by watching it, but uh, how to coach it, how to run drills, and how to teach them how to play, you know. Um, and uh, that, that really taught me a whole lot of patience. We got into the ball game and, um, you know, how, how to encourage them when they're down 25 to nothing, all right? <laughs> and uh, we haven't even crossed the, you know, center court with the ball yet. And uh, so, you know, you're, how many timeouts can a coach call in, in the first five minutes? And uh, so I bring them all together, and they're all down. And, and uh, I'm trying to say, what, what do I say to, to rally them, encourage them? And I say, give it all you got. Just enjoy playing, all right? And then find the open person, try and get it in the basket <laughs> while you're at it. And uh, so, um, you know, they had a good season, and uh, it, we had a team, and they were able to play. And uh, they had a good time, and that was that was great. Um, but uh, it, it was uh, a, a definitely a, a long-suffering experience for me. But you know, when you try and rally the troops together, it can be it can be difficult, especially when you're outnumbered, uh, especially when uh, you know there, there's there's more talent on the other side, especially when they're more experienced and and uh, when, when the advantage goes to the other side and you don't know what you're doing and your coach doesn't know what you're doing and um, you kind of seem down. It seems like what you are doing is not making that much of a difference. And I think it's at this time in the life of Israel that God sends forth prophets to come alongside and to rally the troops to encourage them. To, uh, to follow the Lord. And don't get discouraged. And Zechariah, as we talked about last week, is a book, first of all, as we saw it, to rally the troops together. Don't get comfortable in your own houses while the temple of God lays in ruins. You started a work, 16 years has gone by, you've built your own houses, you've made your own land, you're, you're living off your own crops. God brought you back here to Jerusalem for a purpose, to build his house and to declare his name, not to live in your cabin all comfortable. And so he rallies them, get back, put the shovel back in hand and, and get back to the work and, and, and come back out. Don't get discouraged by those who are, who are in opposition to you. 
Haggai, the, the prophet who comes just before him, who, who prophesied just two months earlier, talked about the, the present sin that had creeped in the life of Israel and uh, that the work was sluggish and, and a revival began to happen and they, they, God had brought a drought and some famine in the land due to their disobedience. And once the revival started and Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel get started, they all get encouraged and they obey the Lord. In fact, flip over just one book to the book of Haggai and look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shaltiah, Joshua the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all of the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. So here's, here's Haggai comes on the scene two months before, encouraging the troops and then Zechariah comes on the scene the younger guy Haggai was an older man Zechariah was a younger man maybe in his early 20s called as a prophet to come along and encourage the the work to continue to not give up so Zechariah comes along saying get to work God's presence is with us and his power is on us and he's doing a work in us. Not only is he rallying the troops, but he's also, it is a book that is to give hope for God's people. In the hard times, when the evil days are surrounding, keep serving the king. Don't give up. What you are doing, every brick that you're putting on the temple, every mortar that you're pasting in, every time that you're running the wheelbarrow back and forth, every step that you take in the work of God matters in the divine plan of God. Don't belittle it. Don't get discouraged. Be obedient. Zechariah sees their obedience as evidence that they believe the promises of God about the future. They, every time they just simply obey God's word, they are showing forth their faith that God has a plan and God is going to do something with what they are doing. And he's going to take their meager, little, small work and he's going to use it for the future of God's redemptive plan. And so Zechariah, a large portion of this book from verse 7 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 14 is going to deal with visions and prophecy and future. And all of that is really being told to the people of Israel to encourage them that their faith is evident of the promises of God, that they believe those promises and they have something to look forward to. What they are doing right now shows them that they believe that God is not finished with them. So Zechariah shows them the future in what God's glory is going to come. And we must be ready to receive that glory when he comes. So Zechariah really in his, in his hope, in his encouragement of rallying the troops, looks forward in the future and his focus says, because we have the promises of God, because a king is coming, because a kingdom is going to come, because there's going to be a temple that's going to be built, because God doesn't forsake his promises and he will be faithful, then what you do in the present matters. Keep going and just take one step at a time. So this is to give them hope. Look what God is going to do. And in the light of what God is going to do, pick up that next brick and do your part. 
I think that has relevance. This whole book, all 14 chapters, has relevance to us. When we read passages such as this that are still yet uh, fulfilled in the future, and we read the book of Revelation, we read passages such as Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we read uh, uh, passages such as the Sermon, uh, the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, when we read about the future in those passages, we recognize God has a plan. He has a purpose. A future is still yet. And what we do today is is, a, is another puzzle piece, is another block into the eternal plan of God and it matters because God's promises must be fulfilled. And somehow by God's grace, He's chosen to use me, a little speck in His eternal timetable to be a part of that plan. And Zechariah rallies his troops, gives hope to the Israelites to look forward to the future, to motivate them in their present ministry. And then, if we would have just wrap, if we would just put a theme over this whole, whole book, this book tells us about Jesus. That's what this book is going to tell us. I showed you a chart last week. I don't have it in the PowerPoint. I, I can get you a printout of it. It's not original to me. I've got it from some of my material. Uh, Unger, I believe, and Merrill as well. That They've gone through the verses in Zechariah that talk about the prophecies of Jesus. No book in the Old Testament so compacts the prophecy about the coming Messiah, both His first coming and His second coming, like the prophet Zechariah. These apocalyptic visions and prophecies that are concerning the future, they've puzzled a lot of scholars. There's a lot of interesting things that Zechariah is going to see. He's going to talk about. In fact, Jewish scholars have actually admitted that Zechariah is completely confusing to them and they cannot interpret it. That's what the Jewish rabbis, when they go back, they don't disregard it as the fact that it is not inspired. They believe it's inspired. They believe it's in their canon of their Tanakh in the Old Testament. However, of all the books in the Old Testament, Zechariah is the one they say, we can't interpret. We just don't know. They see Zechariah as a dark, fuzzy mirror in which they cannot understand. If that is the case, if, if Zechariah is a very confusing and puzzling book and we just got to fizzle through it and we don't really know what it says, then you would think that the New Testament authors would stay away from it. You would think that that would be the opinion of Jesus and John and Paul and the gospel writers. However, this book, is quoted or alluded to 70 times in the New Testament. One commentator actually writes this down. Some 71 quotations of Zechariah appear in the New Testament. 31 of those quotations take place from chapter 1 to chapter 8, and 40 quotations from chapter 9 to chapter 14. Most are found in the book of Revelation. 31 times in the book of Revelation is Zechariah alluded to or quoted. Another 27 times it's found in the gospel. 14 times in Matthew, 7 times in Mark, and 3 times each in Luke and John. Of these, of these uh, found 
22 of them, which come from the last chapters, chapters 9 through 14, they are found recorded in Jesus' ministry in his last week. So 22 times Jesus in his last week, his passion week, will quote from the final chapters of the book of Zechariah. A book that is uh, primarily about the future coming of the Messiah. So that shows you the last week of Jesus' ministry. Where was his mind? His mind was looking to the future hope of his coming. You say, hold on a second. He is coming. During the week of the Passion Week, that was his first. Yes, it was his first coming. But Isaiah, or Zechariah, looks forward to that second coming. Well, he will come and restore Israel back as a nation and come as a king and set up his kingdom. And that was on Jesus' mind when he went to the cross. Twenty-two times he would allude to or quote the book of Zechariah. Now let me just say this, the main reason this book is misunderstood by Jewish scholars and rabbis, here's the main reason, is because they do not accept the book's interpretation about Jesus of Nazareth. That's the last point. That's The Jewish people do not accept Jesus of Nazareth, first century, as the Messiah. And because they do not accept him as the Messiah, they have no idea what to do with the book of Zechariah. They don't know how to interpret it. They don't know what it's calling for. They don't know how how to see it. And what is this prophecy and and all of this and his wounds. And they will look on him whom they have pierced. And and, uh, him being betrayed and, and him riding on the colt of a donkey. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But because they don't accept him, they don't know how to interpret it. And they never will until they accept Jesus as the Messiah. The main reason this book is misinterpreted by many Christians, uh, scholar, Christian scholars is because they don't know how to properly interpret it with their hermeneutic. Because they confuse Israel and the church. And that confusion of Israel and the church and the king and the kingdom and how when it comes to the book of Zechariah they do all kinds of allegorical flips. Now it is an apocalyptic book. There are visions, there are prophecies, there are, there are angels and there are flying scrolls and there are, there are things that we have to work through. I'm not saying that it's not easy. It's difficult. However, with the proper, I believe the proper hermeneutic which is a dispensational hermeneutic, we can come to the book of Zechariah and see it exactly fulfilled as it was to the point in the first coming and the second coming of Christ. So, that's just kind of let you know what this book, book is all about. And let me give you the divisions of this book. This book can be divided into two sections, chapter 1 through chapter 8. And then the final section from chapter 9 through chapter 14. The first eight chapters were given early in Zechariah's ministry as a young man, probably in his 20s. At about 520 B.C., that was given to us as a date in the very first verse. The last chapters, chapters 9 
through 14 were given at a later. There's no date that are associated with them, but most scholars would include this was given at a much later time in Zechariah's ministry, probably as an old man in the late um, uh, 400s B.C., possibly even coming to the time of Nehemiah and, um, uh, and e Esther, towards the latter portion of, um, of the Old Testament, maybe even around the time of Malachi. We don't know. Most would conclude that Zechariah lived to be an old man, and these last chapters probably came in the latter part of his life. So a, a large time frame seems to have passed between the first eight chapters and the last uh, chapters as well. But I divided this book up into three. You can see this. The first six chapters, there are eight visions. Eight visions that he sees. And in fact, just to whet your appetite, we're not going to have the time for this evening, but look at these eight visions. They start in verse 8 of chapter 1. I saw by night... Behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him there were, or were there red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? All right. So there's the first vision, the four horsemen. The next vision comes in, in verse 18 of this chapter. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and beheld there were four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, what be these? All right, four horsemen. The second vision is four horns. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. I lifted up my eyes. Here's another vision. And again, and look, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. All right, he's, he's a construction worker with a measuring tape, and he's measuring out. All right, and then the next, and he says, Whether goest thou? He asked this question to measure Jerusalem. So he's got a, a vision that's seen there. Chapter 3 in verse 1, the fourth vision. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. All right? So there's the fourth vision. Then there's a fifth vision in chapter 4 and verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and the seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And that's a menorah with seven bowls and seven pipes that are leading up to those bowls and uh, that's the vision there. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here is the sixth vision uh, that is seen. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a flying roll. All right. Uh, that's not a restaurant. He's not at a restaurant there. Um, the, the Hebrew there is a scroll, a roll. So that we roll rolled up. That's what a scroll is. And he sees this scroll flying through the air. And we'll talk about the le that later. Chapter 5 and verse 5. Here's the seventh vision that is seen. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goes forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephod that goeth forth. 
And he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So he sees an ephod in verses 5 through 11. And then the last vision, the 8th that he sees, is the vision of the chariots in chapter 6 and verse 1. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and behold, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. And in the first chariot, there was a red horse. And in the second chariot, there was a black and so forth. So those would, those would be the eight visions that he sees in these first six chapters. The second division, which would include the first portion of his prophecy, is chapter 7 and 8. And in chapter 7 and 8, these are some questions that have come out and some answers that he will, he will reveal to them. And so there's some questions that are being asked in verse 3, to speak unto the priests which were in, this is chapter 7 and verse 3, should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I've done these many years? There's the question. Then he'll answer. Then another question, and he'll answer. And that actually goes forth through, through these two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then the last chapters, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, are what Zechariah calls burdens. Look at chapter 9 in verse 1. And the burden of the word of the Lord in the land. The burden. Now look at um, chapter 12 in verse 1. Flip over to chapter 12. And the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord. Alright? So these two burdens that he, that he sees in these final chapters, chapters 9 through 14, are prof prophetic. I like uh, Lockyer's outline of, of this book. He says chapters 1 through 6 are symbolic. That would be the symbolism that we see in the eight visions. Chapters 7 and 8 is didactic. That would be instruction through answer, questions and answers. There's some, some instruction that is going on with uh, following these visions. And then chapters 9 through 14 are prophetic. Prophetic. These are some uh, visions that he sees. or These are prophecies that are going to come out of the Messiah and the future king and kingdom that is going to come through the Messiah. So those are the three divisions, symbolic, didactic, and prophetic in these 14 chapters and how you see that. I have it divided here as eight visions, question, answers, and burdens. At the center of all these visions, all these questions, all these answers, and all these burdens is the king and his kingdom. The king is the Messiah. He's coming. We know his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And his kingdom is going to be on earth. And at the center of that kingdom is going to be his city where he will set his throne and his temple Jerusalem. So the center person, character of the book of Zechariah is the Messiah. And the center location that's going to be brought up over and over and over again is the, the capital of his kingdom is Jerusalem. So let's jump into the text, the scripture. So we'll look in verse chapter 1 and verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. 
Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I have commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts, Though to do unto us, thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Now let's look first of all at the name, the Lord. The Lord. The Lord is sore displeased. Notice it's in all capital letters. When you find in the Old Testament the name L-O-R-D, all in capitals, that is referencing a specific name of God, a Hebrew name of God. It is Yahweh, or spelled for us, Jehovah. So anytime you find capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, it is always the holiest name of God. All the names are holy, but this is the name by which he gave Moses out of the burning bush. I am that I am. Yahweh. Jehovah. And anytime there's a connection with that word, with that name, that is... Um, would be an addition to give us an attribute about that God or a characteristic about Jehovah. And if you notice in these verses, the Lord's name is used eight times in the first six verses. So he's a center figure. Now this is the theme from, from here on out after you get past verse six. It's from verse seven to the rest of the book. Visions, instruction, answers and questions, and prophecy. So you got to get these first six verses. Because it's packed right here. The rest of the book is going to give you an idea of what you're looking at. The rest of the book. And the Lord's name appears. Jehovah. Eight times. And five of those eight times. It is connected to the Lord of hosts. You see that? The Lord of hosts is mentioned. This is Jehovah. Jehovah. The, the Hebrew word Sabaoth. Or the Lord, if it's translated in your, in your Bible, the Lord of armies. Right? This is the powerful name of God. This is this battle term. This is his military term. The Lord of hosts. It's used 53 times in this book. 44 of those 53 times it's used in the first 8 chapters. So this name is, is an important name. It's going to come out in this book. And it's going to appear in a, in a drastic fashion throughout. Eighty times the Lord of hosts is mentioned in the last three books of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Eighty-three times he's called the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. And of those eighty times, fifty-three of them will appear in this book. This little book. This is the name. This is the sovereign one. The Lord of hosts. Who is the sovereign one of the universe. He would be. A good term in the English would be. The powerful sovereign. 
So the Lord of hosts, some have said, well, what is that hosts of? Is it the host of heaven? Is that all of the, the armies of heaven? Is that the host of the stars? Because often in the Old Testament, the word host is used of the stars, the host in the sky. Or, or is it, uh, you know, what is it talking about? All of creation, it's talking about all of it. God is in charge. Jehovah is in charge of all of it. Interesting enough, this is one of the names of God that appears by little David when he has his sling and he walks out in front of Goliath and he says, you come to me with spear and with sword, but I come to you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord who fights my battles. And he's much bigger than you and your army. So bring it on, Goliath. That's how David approached the Goliath. He used this name. And it's used 80 times in the last three chapters, uh, or the last three books of, of the Bible. And it's mentioned five times in the first six verses. So this is a good reminder. If you could just keep this. This is a good reminder of who's in charge. Don't forget this. Did you read the name of the king? In verse 1. Who's the king in verse 1? What's his name? Somebody yell it out. Darius. What tribe of, of, of Jacob is Darius from? What, what tribe? Is he from the tribe of Levi or Judah or Benjamin? I see some heads shaking now. He's from the Persian tribe. Let's put it that way. Of all of the major and minor prophets, all of them except two, two, date their book by the Jewish king that is on the throne. Do you know that? Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, um, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all right? Some of these books, maybe some of them actually don't give a date with a king, but those who do, and the majority of them do, give the date of the Jewish king who's on the throne, either of the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, except two. Haggai and Zechariah. There are three other books that also date their method by a foreign king. Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. All five of those books come after Israel has already been in exile. There is no Jewish king. Where is he? The last one, his eyes were plucked out, his hands were tied to a mule, his hair was shaven, and he was taken to Babylon and paraded around as a conquering um, uh, uh, a pawn and puppet. From Nebuchadnezzar. That was the last Jewish king. There is no king. And how discouraging is it. For the Jewish people. After 70 years of captivity. Living under Cyrus. Living under Darius. Living under Nebuchadnezzar. And remembering all the things that he'd done. To come back and march into the city of Jerusalem. Build the temple. And look around. No king. No king. And to be reminded that when they have to date their book and their prophecy, they have to do it by a pagan. Because Darius, and from this time on, Daniel says, this is the time of the Gentiles. Who will rule Israel? 
on earth. Men like Alexander the Great. Men like Nero and Caesar Augustus. Men who will come on the throne who will be their king and demand loyalty to them. While they're in their little land, doing their traditions and following the Old Testament law, looking around waiting for their king. And each one of these prophecies, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, doesn't necessarily date his book uh, by a king. But they come along and they say, I just want to remind you, even though you are serving under Darius and we're dating our time by Darius and by Gentile kings from here on out, don't you ever forget who's in charge. And one day your king is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne again and you will sit under his feet. So don't lose hope. So just because you're living in a time that is very discouraging, remember Who's the Lord of armies? Who's the one that's in charge? In verse 2, he reads here, he gives us in verse 2, that God is angry. He says here, God is angry. He's sore displeased. In verse 2, he's sore displeased with your fathers. This word sore displeased, this is a strong word, meaning God is furious. The, The literal reading of this verse says... um, says here, God is angry with anger. It's translated in our King James as the word very angry, but it's actually the same word twice. He is angry with anger. He's mad. He's upset. This was a word that was used of Pharaoh in Exodus 40 when he was mad at, at, at Moses and the Israelites. This was used of Moses when he came off and he was mad at the people and threw the tablets down. Isaiah uses this term for God who is angry. And in verse 15, this word is used again. He is very displeased with the heathens, with the pagans who are at ease in this chapter. So why is God angry? Why is God angry? Well, the verse tells you why God is angry. He's very angry and upset with your fathers. I think it's interesting that uh, one, one commentator indicated that the prophet says, with your fathers, not my fathers, or our fathers. It's not that he's ignoring his, uh, his heritage, that he doesn't belong with the Israelites. Sometimes the prophets will say, we have sinned, our fathers have sinned, our people have sinned. It's interesting that when Zechariah gives this prophecy, he says... Your fathers, your fathers are the ones that sinned. And so why would he, why would he be pointing the, isn't he from the tribe of, of Israel as well? Yes, he is. But what he's going to distinguish here is he's saying, listen, God doesn't have to be angry with you. And he's saying, God is not angry necessarily with me because I've gone through the prerequisites to meet his demands. What are those prerequisites? What are those demands? Well, he says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord to them, Turn ye unto me. Here's the the prophet. He says, This is what I want you to do. Your fathers have sinned, and they've made God angry, made God displeased. 
And, and Zechariah is wanting them to understand, you don't have to follow in their mistakes. You don't have to believe what they believe. You don't have to act like they act. You don't have to follow in their behavior, in their patterns. Change the pattern of your fathers. I like the story when you go read through the book of Genesis and you read from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One sin that passes on another sin that passes on another sin. Abraham was a polygamist. Isaac, Jacob. Right? You get to walk down, you see Abraham lied, Isaac lied, Jacob lied. I mean, this pattern of, of deception and, and everything. And then you come to the 12 sons of Jacob. And you see a pattern of sin and sin and selfishness and lying and murder except one. And his name is Joseph. And he sets out a pattern in the last portion of the book of Genesis and says, you can live before God and not make him angry. If you will view what he views as wrong and what he views as right and learn to live by him. That's why Joseph would say in his heart, how can I do this to great wickedness against God? He broke the pattern of his parents. It doesn't mean that they didn't get some things right, but they got things wrong. That doesn't mean that Joseph wasn't a sinner. He had to deal with sin. But interesting as Moses is writing this story, that he will paint out a picture of Joseph being Christ-like. What is he doing? He's breaking the pattern. And I think that is something for us to help us to understand as well. I don't care how, how bad your dad and mom were with their temper. You don't have to have that same type of temper. I don't care if they had habits in smoking or drinking or doing this or doing that. You don't have to blame your parents for your sin and your choices. In fact, you shouldn't. They are influences. But Zechariah is saying, you can stop that pattern of sin. Don't do what your fathers did. Learn from their mistakes. And how do you learn from their mistakes? The answer is the call for uh, repentance in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Therefore say unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn you unto me. Now, I just... Because of the time that we have this evening, pretty much already gone. Can I just mention this as a close here? If he, he says here, if you will return or turn to me, then I will turn to you. That's a similar prophecy. And you actually write it down if it's not in your, um, a similar verse to James chapter 4 in verse 8. When God said, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. This is the theme of the book. You see, you cannot enjoy the promises of God until you have first repented and turned to the Lord. This is the requirement of all the blessings, all the visions that Zechariah is going to see from this next few verses to the rest of the book that is going to come. All the promises, all the prophecy, the blessing of the king, the blessing of the kingdom, the blessings, the spirit that's going to come, the Messiah that's going to come, the nation that is going to rejoice and see him and be saved and sit in peace and enjoy the land. All of those blessings that God is going to bring to his people cannot be enjoyed Without this word, turn. Turn is the Hebrew word that, that indicates the connection of God's promises and God's covenant. Three times it's used in these verses. All of the Old Testament prophets said and pleaded this call. Turn, turn, 
return. Isaiah 6 and verse 10, he said that they would return or they would turn to him and be healed. Isaiah 55 and verse 1, he says, come, come, come. Isaiah 55 and verse 6, he says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Return. Turn over in Malachi at the end of the book. And we'll close with this. Malachi chapter 3 in verse 7. The New Testament op- or the Old Testament opened with this call for repentance. Zechariah calls for this repentance. And in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 7, notice what he says. Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you. Saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? Look at chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah. This is how the Old Testament ends. The prophet before the coming great day and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the Old Testament concludes with a call of repentance to turn. Do you know how the New Testament opens up? Flip two pages. In Matthew chapter 3. For 400 years there's been silence. And all of a sudden a man wearing skin clothes. Eating locusts and honey. In Matthew 3 and verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Judea saying. What's the word? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. So the Old Testament closes with this call for repentance. Turn. And the New Testament opens with this call to repent and to turn. To him and he will turn to you. Father thank you for the promise. That we can enjoy the blessings. That are laid out in in the scripture. And in these promises. in, In these prophecies of the book of Zechariah. And these prophecies can, can open our heart to, to see the blessings of God and the future blessings that are going to come. And if we want to be a part of those blessings, if we, wanna, we, we want to inherit the kingdom of God, we want to, to see the king in his glory, then we must obey the call of all of the prophets from Old to New Testament. We must repent. We must turn from our sin And turn to the Savior. And when we do that in your compassion and your grace. You turn to us. And you come close. That's why James would call out. If we will draw nigh. And we'll cleanse our hands. And confess. Then you will draw nigh to us. And Lord maybe there's someone here tonight that needed to hear this word uh, in light of the future promise and curse that is to come upon this world would there's someone tonight would they return Uh, you've not left they have left they're the ones that have followed the pattern of sin from their fathers and their their mothers and lord would they would they turn their heart back to you who is loving loving them and calling them forth 
by your servants. Um, bless us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you.